Father, thank you so much for your goodness. Thank you for your mercy and your grace. Lord, that covers us, God, that is new for us every morning. God, thank you for the fact that you are sure, you are strong. God, that you are our foundation. God, if we were to put our hope and our trust in anything else, God, it will crumble. But you are the one thing, the one person, God, that we can rely upon. And so, Lord, I pray that this morning as we dive into your word, God, that you would teach us, uh, Lord, that you would show us that your word is truth. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. You can be seated for just a moment uh, as we begin to dive in. If we haven't had the opportunity to get to know each other, uh, my name is Cole Forrest, and I serve on staff here at Cross as a student minister. Uh, And I'm excited to be with you this morning as we dive into the Word uh, together. And so if you would, just go ahead and flip over into your Bible to Nehemiah chapter 8. That's where we're going to spend a bulk of our time this morning. Uh, And if you've been with us for a little while, what you've begun to see is that we've been in a sermon series entitled Restore and Rebuild. And during this time, what we've been doing is walking through the books of Ezra and Nehemiah, seeing how God brings his people out of exile back to Jerusalem. He rebuilds the temple and he rebuilds the walls. But ultimately, what we're going to see is that he is rebuilding a people. He is rebuilding a people. And along the way, throughout this time, uh, there have been plenty of hardships right, for the people of God. They have uh, had pauses in construction. Uh, People threatened to hurt their leaders. And today we find ourselves in the narrative where the temple has been rebuilt and the walls have been rebuilt as well. But now God is going to do a work within his people. See, last week as Taylor wrapped up uh, chapter 6 of Nehemiah, we saw there were three primary distractions for our mission. Those being spiritual forces, secondary differences, and superficial preferences. And this week as we jump in, we are going to see uh, that not only is God rebuilding structures, but he is rebuilding his people. And so uh, I want to get some hands on this one. How many of you guys like Fixer Upper? Okay, if your hand didn't go up, then like, I don't know what's wrong with you. That's okay. Um, But Fixer Upper is a great show. Okay, it's a great TV show. Uh, And and so some of y'all maybe have even got the new app, you know, where they've got their new show coming out. Uh, But in Fixer Upper, what tends to happen is that they, they get a house and they go in, they start to remodel right? They knock out walls, they take out cabinetry, uh, they redo floors, they have to go in sometimes and redo beams and stuff. Uh, But what we see is that they remodel. And that is not what God desires to do with our lives. He doesn't say, I'm going to come in and remodel your life, take out a few things they hear, put in a few new things there. But rather, he said he's going to rebuild us from the bottom up. Knock out all of our foundations that we think are so sure and so true, but really they're faulty, and he will rebuild us from the ground up. And that starts with his word being our sure foundation. And that leads us to our central truth this morning, is that God's word is powerful. Positioning our hearts to long for Christ and to live life by his design. It is all based upon his word. And as we dive into uh, our text this morning, what I want to do is overview chapter 7, because we're not going to spend a lot of time in it. Uh, but as you look in your, in your word, in your copy of scripture, uh, you'll see that a bulk majority of chapter 7 has a list of names with numbers. Uh, and what we want to do is we don't want to uh, just gloss over it and not pay any respect to that at all. We know that uh, all those numbers and all of those names have value and a purpose. And we say that because we know that each number is a name, is a person, and every person is a story. And every person's story matters. 
And so that's why we're not going to talk about, hey, how many people were here on a Sunday morning, but rather we're going to talk about how is God transforming the lives of people as the gospel is proclaimed, whether it's here on a Sunday morning or in groups, y'all. It is all about Jesus. And so we want to talk about the transforming power uh, that Christ has. And so not to skim over and to kind of put those numbers to rest, but we're going to jump in here at chapter 8, starting in verse 1. So if you will uh, follow along with me, Nehemiah chapter 8, starting at verse 1. It says, And all the people gathered as one man into the square before the water gate. And they told Ezra the scribe to bring the book of the law of Moses that the Lord had commanded Israel. So Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly, both men and women and all who could understand what they heard. And on the first day of the seventh month, verse 3, And he read it from facing the square before the water gate from early morning until midday in the presence of the men and women and those who could understand. And all the ears of the people were attentive to the book of the law. And so as we talk about how God's word is powerful and how he begins to rebuild his people, we begin to see this morning for point number one is that as God rebuilds us as his people, we become zealous for the scriptures. We become zealous for the scriptures. Here we begin to see just in the first couple of verses that the people desire to know God's word. And what do they do? They gather together. They come together for one sole purpose, and that is to hear the word of God proclaimed. And this is apparent because Ezra doesn't just show up on the scene and begin to just talk about the word or to proclaim the word, but rather they tell Ezra to go and bring the book to them that they might hear the word. We should remember that just 13 years earlier, Ezra had come with the the exiles back into Jerusalem, have the temple rebuilt. And from that time on, he had been teaching the law to the people and continuing to do what we see here, is that he teaches them and begins to help them to understand. He reads it aloud and helps everyone to understand what is being said. See, what's beautiful about this passage is that from the beginning, Ezra reads the word before the entire assembly. It says men, women, all who could understand. If you've been in here at all over for any extended amount of time, you will know that uh, throughout service, you may hear uh, tears, you may hear laughter, you may hear cackling of children because we value the fact that of families worshiping together. And so because God's word here is very descriptive in what happens, but we see this as a good practice for us that we want all to hear the word of God. And so don't be upset if you hear a baby cry or cackle or laugh throughout service because we want them to hear the word because we know that it will not return void. And so as we do that, uh, you know, there's one thing that I want to take a little step deeper. This one hits a little bit closer to my home, uh, hear this. And so uh, as we begin to start talking about we want everyone to hear the scriptures, I want to bring to your attention student ministry, right? Student ministry over the last 20 to 30 years has become probably even more of a new phenomenon. Uh, But what we have done is we, uh, as a church, Western church culture, what we have done is we've said, hey, uh, we're going to have the the main gathering for adults. And then uh, we're going to kind of have this other thing over here in another space for students just to to hear the word and sing and do their own thing on Sunday morning. It's going simultaneously with the main gathering. And what we've done in that is we've said we're going to put you in a box in a generational chasm that will then allow you to only be able to communicate with people that are like you. Rather than them being able to sit in a service and worship with multi-generations of people to be able to say that I can connect with you even though you're much different than me. Even though you have walked a life that it looks different than mine, even though we don't look the same and we don't talk the same. 
that we can actually connect and we can worship the same God in spirit and in truth. And so this begins to beg the question that so many of us ask if you've been in the church for a while. We begin to ask the question, so why is it that whenever students turn 18 and they go off to college that they leave the church and they leave the faith? Simply put, the hard truth is that they don't know Jesus. But also to be in their corner for those who do know Jesus, what have we done to help them? As the church, what have we done to assimilate them into the body when all we've done is created another space for them to worship that isn't with us? So we cannot isolate them, but rather we must bring them in because this is why you don't see us uh, having student gatherings on Sunday morning. This isn't why I'm preaching in another venue with with our students on Sunday mornings because we value multi-generational worship. We want to teach them what does it look like for you to be the church, not just a part of the church, but the church, because as believers, we are all the church. And so with that at our forefront, what we must now begin to see is that we have a part to play. We have a part to play in seeing that all people are gathered together and not just isolating people to a generational context. Now, as I get off my soapbox, let's kind of continue through into verse 3. In verse 3, we see that not only are the people gathered together and asking for Ezra to proclaim the word, but they hear the word proclaimed for hours on end. Look back down uh, at verse 3 with me. And he read it from it facing the square before the water gate from early morning until midday in the presence of men and women and those who could understand. You see, the people were zealous to hear God's word, but they also, they listened for a long time. From early morning to midday. I don't know about y'all, but that seems like a long time. When I think about that time period, I think about four to six hours, maybe eight hours. In the context in which we live now, if a video doesn't load on our phone in three seconds, we're on to the next thing. Let alone to actually sit around and hear God's word read for four to six hours. We don't have the patience. We don't have the time. And as a culture, what we do is we struggle to actually be present, to be attentive to the word for any period of time, let alone four to six hours. We live in a time where uh, if the video really just doesn't go then, or doesn't load, then we are really truly on to the next thing. Scroll to the next page, whatever it may be. But really what it boils down to as well, if, apart from just our social media, is that even as followers of Jesus, we have allowed ourselves to become comfortable being habitually late on Sunday mornings or leaving early. We have become so comfortable of longing for the next thing to do that we forget what really matters. And that's God and his word. We make excuses for ourselves being late. And now I know that there are true real life circumstances that cause us to be late or to have to leave early. But the excuse of I'm just too tired or I was in traffic is not a good enough excuse. If you were to ask the same question to your boss, if you were to show up late multiple times, what would be his response or her response? Pack your bags and leave. Now as the church, that's not what we do. But rather what we should do is kind of put this in the lens of if this is my value of I need to get to work on time so I can get my work done and I can make money and pay the bills and that's the value there. How much more value should we as followers of Jesus say that God has commanded me to be with the gathering, to be with the group of believers, to listen to God's word, to sing God's word, to pray God's word. Where is our value actually found? And it must be found in the scriptures. So why would I not value gathering with other people? Why would I not value being attentive to the word? And this is kind of where we have to put the, the rubber to the road and say that you can only be attentive to the word if you make yourself available to the word. 
You can only be attentive to the word if you make yourself available to the word. I think about this in the context of our winter retreat that we just had with students. If you were to ask them probably what was their least favorite thing, apart from the having to ride in vans all the way up there with their mask on, they would probably tell you that they didn't get to have their cell phone. From the moment that we got there, they already knew cell phones were a no-go. We weren't going to have phones for the whole purpose of us being able to be distraction-free from the word. We wanted to get there and be able to communicate with one another. Y'all, if we can't ride in a car ride for four hours without a phone, something's wrong. But at the end of the day, what we wanted them to do is be able to just unplug, be with God, hear his word proclaimed and respond to his word. And so that begins to ask the question, what do we individually do to make ourselves present for God to move through his word in our life? What do we do? Personally, in our, in our private time, do we free ourselves of distraction? Do we put our phone in the other room? Do we make sure that the animals are fed before we sit down so they don't whine at our feet? Or even do we just have to get up earlier to be able to spend time with the, with the Lord before the sun rises and before things get crazy in our life? Or maybe in the corporate gathering, do you silence your cell phone? Or are you praying as you come in that, you would, that God would rid you of all distractions and you would put your burdens at the foot of the cross? Why? So we would be reminded of the gospel. See, as we continue on in the next couple of verses, what we're going to see is that a deeper description of really what Ezra had been doing. He said we get a, an overview of he preached and he proclaimed the word for four to six hours and we begin to see what happens as he proclaims the word. He stands up in something that would be like a pulpit. They were prepared for this moment. They were ready, ready to elevate the word of God. And what happens as he reads aloud the word is that they bow down with their faces to the ground in worship. But not only do they worship and surrender, they also worship by discipling others in the word that was being proclaimed. Look down at verse 7 with me real quick. As you look at verse 7, what we begin to see is that there's 13 men that are listed and the Levites. And what it says is this, is that they helped the people to understand the law while the people remained in their places. They helped go on. See, y'all, this is what we see as personal discipleship. Someone who loves Jesus is zealous for his word and someone who is zealous for his word desires for others to know and understand his word. And this is why it is important that we practice clear gospel-centered exposition from the pulpit. As I, I, I kind of broke fast a little bit and got on Twitter, so you can go ahead and shame me. Um, but as uh, I saw uh, on Twitter, even last night as I was looking, uh, one pastor uh, talked about what his son says about what he does. As he explained it to his friend, this is what he said that his father does. He reads the Bible, he interprets the Bible, and he explains it so that we can understand. That's his job. That he would proclaim the word, not any ideas or emotion, but rather the word. But not only is this the mantle of a pastor or of a preacher, but it's also the mantle for each and every one of us in discipling others in the scripture. We have that mantle upon ourselves. Just look at the Great Commission, Matthew 28, 19 through 20. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. A lot of times what we tend to, do, tend to do is stop there, but we can't because Jesus commanded more. Make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey all. Everybody say all. All that I have commanded you, and behold, always I am with you, even to the end of the age. Yo, we are to disciple. We are to be in community with one another, doing life on life. So the, the next question really must be, have you joined a community group yet? What's stopping you? Is it preferences? 
Is it that you feel like you don't have enough time? What is it? Is it something that actually has value? Or have you placed value in something else over God's word? Or maybe if you're in community group, the next question would be, well, have you joined a D group or a core group? Are you diving deeper and to be accountable to reading and memorizing scripture, calling out sin? What is it that you need to do as your next step? But as God begins to rebuild his people, what we have to see is that they become zealous for the scriptures. They desire it, and that should be true of us as well. And so we gather around the word and are attentive to the word, and we disciple in the word. Let's continue reading in Nehemiah chapter 8, verses 9 through 12. It says, And Nehemiah, who was the governor, and Ezra the priest, and the scribe, and the Levites, who taught the people, said to all the people, This day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep. For all the people wept as they heard the words of the law. Then he said to them, Go your way. Eat the fat and drink sweet wine and send portions to anyone who has nothing ready. For this day is holy to the Lord and do not be grieved for the joy of the Lord is your strength. So the Levites calmed all the people saying, Be quiet for this day is holy. Do not be grieved. And all the people went their way to eat and to drink and to send portions and to make great rejoicing because they had understood the words that were declared to them. So not only do we become zealous for the scriptures, but as God rebuilds us as his people, we become joyful over God's work in our lives. We become joyful over God's work in our lives. You see, in verse 9, what we see is that people are distraught as they hear the word proclaimed. There they look back and see how disobedience to God had led them to a place of exile. They were broken over their own sin, and as they see the weight of sinning against the holy God, this begs the question, really, of what Taylor has been asking us for weeks on end. Are you broken over your sin? Are we broken over our sin, or has sin just become a nonchalant shrug of our shoulders, life will go on? Because I would say that that's probably the way that we live. See, the world has no grid for sin unless it directly impacts our day-to-day life. Unless it's expressed in clear actions such as cheating on a spouse or completely tearing someone down in front of everyone, y'all, the world has no grid for sin. It has no grid for sin. I think about it in this way. Uh, whenever I was in high school, I worked at Bojangles, okay? So needless to say, I still eat at Bojangles, so I know Bojangles can be different, but uh, that means the kitchen wasn't that dirty. Um, but I worked at Bojangles, and I remember in high school, a group of my friends, uh, it was towards the end of baseball season, so I've been working, playing baseball, and one of my, my friends, he had a pool. And so after school, uh, and then after practice, I was set to go uh, to work. And then I'm like, I want to go to the pool. And so what do I do? I do what all of us probably do in the room. I text my manager and say, I'm sick. And from there, I go to the pool and I hang out and I have a great time. But towards the end, I'm, I'm making sure, hey, don't post those pictures because I don't want my boss to see and then me get in trouble. See, that's the, that's the moment when we realize that we were living in sin is when we don't want to get caught. And so no matter what it is, whether it is uh, the, the little bit of idolizing comfort of God over God or it's idolatry, murdering someone or lying, sin is a big deal. And the Israelites here know this to be true as they weep over their sin. But Ezra and the Levites tell them to stop their weeping, to stop crying, but to eat, drink, and be merry because the day was holy to the Lord. He tells them that they should not wallow in their sin and in their sadness, but rather rejoice in the Lord. I mean, just look down at verse 10. 
Do not be grieved, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. They were hearing the word and being encouraged to remember. To remember all that God had done. Bringing them out of exile, restoring the temple, rebuilding the wall, and now he was rebuilding his people. They would remember Passover. If you've been in the Bible reading plan, Leviticus 23 was Monday's reading, and we begin to walk through all of these different feasts and festivals that they are going to start to talk to here in this text. And they would remember Passover, how a lamb would be sacrificed, and the blood of that lamb covered the doorframe of their home so that the disobedience to God would be covered. And the penalty of death would pass over them. We must ask the question for ourselves, how could we find joy in the Lord? Why should I not wallow in my sin? Why would I not just stay in the state of thinking that I'm not good enough? And the answer is Jesus. Their joy was found in a picture of what Christ would ultimately perfect. See, Jesus is the spotless lamb and died instead of you and me. He died in our place, taking on the full penalty of our sin. So why should we rejoice in this? Because in Jesus, he has taken on our punishment and our death. And in his death and resurrection, he has defeated our sin and death, making us new. Giving us new life, freedom from the bondage of sin and death. So no matter where we find ourselves, in whatever situation, we know that the worst and most horrific situation that we could ever be in has been accomplished by Jesus and not by ourselves. That's why we look at like Romans 2 and we see that in God's kindness, he draws us to repentance. We see our brokenness before a holy God, but he takes care of us. He shows us his love and that he would lay down his life while we were still his enemies. See, as with this truth at the forefront of our minds, no matter the circumstances we find ourselves in, whether it's marital strife, whether you're PCSing to a new location, or maybe you just spilt coffee on your shirt on the drive to work, we have joy. We look back throughout our lives and see that even through the hardest of circumstances, God brought us through. And in our remembrance, we have hope for tomorrow. So, so far what we've seen is that as God rebuilds us as his people, we become zealous for the word. We also become joyful over God's work in our lives. But thirdly, he rebuilds us, as he rebuilds us, his people, as his people, we become obedient from the heart. Obedient from the heart. What we see in verse 13 is that the people gathered together again. So not only had they heard the word for four to six hours, now they gather again to hear it more. All the more they want to hear the word. So let's read verses 14 through 16 together. And they found it written in the law that the Lord had commanded by Moses that the people of Israel should dwell in booths during the feast of the seventh month. And that they should proclaim it and publish it in all of their towns and in Jerusalem. Go to the hills and bring branches of olive and wild olive, myrtle, palm, and other leafy trees to make booths as it is written. So the people went out and brought them and made booths for themselves, each on his roof and in, roof and in their courts, and in the courts of the house of God, and in the square at the water gate, and in the square of the gate of Ephraim. See, they hear the commandment of the Lord read aloud, and what do they do? They obey. They remember their time in the wilderness. They remember the time when their families were not allowed to enter the promised land. And so what do they do? They begin to go out and they actually do what God commands. Look down at verse 18 with me. In verse 18, the word says this, And day by day, from the first day to the last day, he read from the book of the law. They kept the feast seven days. And on the eighth day, there was a solemn assembly according to the rule. See, the people are obedient to God's word. They wanted to hear it all the more. They heard all that God had said in the book, and they wanted to obey. You see, in the church today, we may have seen so much legality or maybe people that are just downright rude. 
people take the commandments of God and just like the Pharisees did, add to them and condemn people for not living up to a standard that they don't even hold themselves. And while sometimes people have good intentions, many times what they've done is actually just miss the mark, thinking that their obedience would somehow earn God's favor. And they may not say that in their speech, but it's actually how they live. This morning, one thing you need to hear is that your obedience isn't for God's love. Your obedience is not for God's love. And just as the Israelites are being obedient because they had experienced God in forgiving them and rebuilding the temple and the walls and restoring the word to them, they were now obedient to God because they simply loved him. It's so easy to grow up in the church or to go to church for a while or a long time and begin to believe the lie of religion, that you work your way to God. This is why the gospel is so important. If you were to flip over in your Bible to Romans chapter 5, verses 9 through 11, this is what it reads as Paul writes. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him. For from the wrath of God, for if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son. Much more now that we have been reconciled shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. You see, it's always been about Jesus' work. It's never been about our work or our good deeds. The, Isaiah says this in 60, chapter 64, verse 6, as he writes. He says, We have all become like one who is unclean, and all our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. We all fade like a leaf, and our iniquities like the wind take us away. See, this is a reminder for us that we don't earn our salvation, but rather it is freely given. You see, our obedience is from love and not for love. It's from love and not for love. I think about uh, how I would love my wife well. You see this scrawny little beard I got up here. Part of the reason why I have that is because my wife doesn't want me to shave it. Because when I shave my beard, it's really scratchy. And I won't get a kiss for like months on end. And I don't say that because like she's just mad at me. It's because my facial hair takes so long to grow. (laughs) And so out of a love for my wife, I don't shave my beard. Because it brings her happiness. I love my wife, therefore I will do what pleases her. What makes her feel secure. But another reason I guess why I wouldn't shave it is because none of y'all want to see me with a baby face. But think about it in terms of our spiritual disciplines. If you read your Bible, pray fast, or even are baptized in order to gain some kind of favor to God or take a step towards God, you miss the point. We read the Bible, pray fast, and are baptized because we love Jesus and we want to grow our relationship with him. You see, it's from love not to gain love. So what does this begin to mean for us this morning? As you look down at your message notes, you'll see a few things. The first is this, that we free ourselves of distraction to hear from God's word. Earlier we said that in order to be attentive to God's word, we must be available to hear his word. That we will be able to worship him in truth and in spirit. And so as you reflect on your time with God, your personal time or corporate, what are the things that need to go away? What are the things that need to be put aside? Maybe it's even just the thoughts that you have as you walk into the room. 
that you would lay them at the feet of Jesus. Second thing we can do is preach the gospel to ourselves. Now this is, seems like somewhat of a new phenomenon, but um, when I was finishing up residency, uh, I remember this is the one thing that the pastor said all the time. No matter if we were on a Sunday morning or if we were uh, in staff meeting or if it was just a one-on-one conversation with him, it was, Cole, preach the gospel to yourself. So every morning when you wake up and you know that you have the day ahead of you, look yourself in the mirror and tell you all that Jesus has done. Because it's from that hope that you will have joy throughout the rest of the day. It doesn't mean there won't be hard stuff that's going to happen. You're going to spill coffee on your way to work. You're going to have somebody at work frustrate you, anger you. But you can embrace those circumstances with joy because of the gospel. And then thirdly, reprioritize Jesus in our lives. We reprioritize Jesus in our lives. Maybe that's just from beginning to come to the gathering more than once a month. Or maybe it's that we make time for God throughout our day to spend time in his word, to pray. What is it that is true for you? And so this brings us to, I think, a good point is as you came in, there was a card on your seat, the great rebuild. There's there's various things that you can look at there that would be maybe your next step. What is your next step to reprioritize Jesus in your life or even just to prioritize him for the first time? Whether you're a new believer, maybe you're trusting in Jesus for the first time this morning, or you trusted him 35 years ago. Maybe that step is baptism, that you would put on display an outward expression of an inward reality. And through that, you prioritize Jesus to make him known through public profession or faith. Or maybe it's covenant membership. Maybe it's that you've been connected, but you haven't been committed. That you would be a part of the family that we would gather around the preaching of God's word, or maybe it's just to recover time in the word. All I'm doing is walking down your card. So if you're walking with me through it, I hope that you see that there are a few other things, community groups, that you would serve on a serve team, on a, on a team that shows that you know, we don't just come to, to, to receive, but we come to give. How do you need to reprioritize Jesus in your life? It looks different for each of us, but it all remains the same to put Jesus at the forefront of our lives. That we would take ourselves off the trophy case and put Jesus back in his rightful place.